So before we jump into today's episode, I just wanted to let you know that if you wanted to find out more about my new book, The Gap, The Little Space Between What You Know and Don't Know, maybe you just want to dip your toe in the water, you want to see what it will read like or feel like, you can actually download two sections for free by heading over to explorethegap.com. That's explorethegap.com. And it's the two sections titled Introduction and Worldviews. And in those sections, you'll learn things like what is the gap, what makes the gap small, what you can expect from reading the book, you know, what's the first lesson you'll need to close any gap, what's one of the most critical strategies to close any gap, and you'll even find out what the Rolling Stones can teach us about the gap. Who knew? So with that being said, again, you could just head over to explorethegap.com. That's explorethegap.com. Okay, now that I've got that out of the way, let's jump into today's episode. Who's ready to embrace being a generalist today? My name is Doug Vigliotti, and welcome to It's Not What It Seems. What's up, everyone? Thank you for tuning in today. This is the seventh episode for the new book club in 2019. These book club episodes are conversations about the book of the month between my oldest brother, Darren, and I, and I'm not going to go through the entire spiel, but if you want more information on the book club, there will definitely be a link in the show notes. Just in short, we select one nonfiction book a month, take some notes, then get together and chat about the book. This is what you will hear today. Right now, it's completely informal. You could tune in, not tune in, read, not read, whatever you want. The option is all yours. Each episode airs on the last Sunday of every month. And we'll be actually taking the month of August off. So the book for September will be announced on the August 2019 reading list. So if you're not a member already of my reading list, then if you're up for it, you can sign up at dvreadinglist.com. You'll get not only the book of the month for upcoming months, but you'll also get my book picks every single month. So today's discussion will be about the book of the month for July 2019. Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World by David Epstein. It's the most current book we've ever read on the book club as it came out in May of this year, 2019. David is the author of the bestseller, The Sports Gene, and has master's degrees in environmental science and journalism, and he's worked as an investigative reporter for ProPublica and a senior writer for Sports Illustrated. Here's a little bit more about Range. Plenty of experts argue that anyone who wants to develop a skill, play an instrument, or lead their field should start early, focus intensely, and rack up as many hours of deliberate practice as possible. If you dabble or delay, you'll never catch up to the people who got a head start. But a closer look at research on the world's top performers, from professional athletes to Nobel laureates, shows that early specialization is the exception, not the rule. David Epstein examined the world's most successful athletes, artists, musicians, inventors, forecasters, and scientists. He discovered that in most fields, especially those that are complex and unpredictable, generalists, not specialists, are primed to excel. Generalists often find their path late, and they juggle many interests rather than focusing on one. They're also more creative, more agile, and able to make connections their more specialized peers can't see. 
provocative, rigorous, and engrossing, range makes a compelling case for actively cultivating inefficiency. Failing a test is the best way to learn. Frequent quitters end up with the most fulfilling careers. The most impactful inventors cross domains rather than deepening their knowledge in a single area. As experts silo themselves further while computers master more of the skills once reserved for highly focused humans, People who think broadly and embrace diverse experiences and perspectives will increasingly thrive. So with that being said, Darren and I do our best to synthesize some of the key themes and share our own experiences. Hopefully this chat might provide a little clarity, maybe spark a little inspiration, or at least encourage you to know that it's not too late to start whatever you want to do. And perhaps you might be better off because you did start later. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy today's conversation about the new book, Range. Full disclaimer, Darren and I completely understand we only see the world through our perspectives. And just like any one perspective, it's affected by our experiences, environment, biases, luck, and a plethora of other factors. This means we'll often use anecdotal examples from our own lives. We only know what we know, and even that is under scrutiny. Neither of us are or claim to be subject matter experts in many of the topics we will be discussing. After all, this is exactly why we are reading these books. It's important to remember this is nothing more or nothing less than a conversation between two brothers about a book they both read. So I wanted to ask you, obviously, the, the, the first question that came to my head when, when I read this book was generalist or specialist? What are you, did Epstein make the case for you that generalism is the, the way to go or is it spe- specialize early? And Well, I got to admit my own bias here, which is that <laughs> I've always seen myself somewhat as a generalist. And, and the first note I wrote down was just the concept of jack of all trades, master of none which is, I've never thought of myself as having true mastery over any one thing, but I've always felt that like one of my own personal strengths was knowing a decent amount about a lot of different things, right? And if you even think about like what my college degree, like I have a major in biology and a minor in English. Yeah. And like, I consider those two things, you know, like I, I always feel like I have my art side and my science side. And I always let one inform the other in a way that I don't, and I know people that are way more, science, like they know way more about science than I do and people that are, know way more about English than I do. But I don't know a ton of people that like have, yeah, you know, both, except for the person I'm married to, coincidentally, <laughs> which is funny that we Makes managed to match up. <laughs> so I'm a little biased towards uh, generalists, but I, I do think he makes a good case. And I, and I do think it's very much context specific. But one of the things that I know we've talked about a lot is that I'm personally trying to just understand the world better. Yeah. And I think in order to understand the world better, you need more pieces of the puzzle. Yeah. And part of the challenge of living in, you know, our modern complex information rich society is that you can literally spend your entire life becoming a specialist in one thing and knowing as much as you can about that thing. Yeah. And 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 probably getting to the end of your life and still not knowing everything there is to know about it. But you're looking so much at that one tiny little piece of the puzzle that you're missing the big picture, right? It's like the forest for the trees problem. So for me, I think that in order for us to move forward as like a civilization, the more 
wide range of experience and information that most of us, more of us can have, the, the better off we're going to be, right? Especially at dealing with complexity. You know, understanding that like this one way isn't giving me at all the, the information that I need to have. Yeah, so I mean, I, I think I, I agree with you, obviously, in, 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 a, in a, to a certain degree. I mean, in all fairness, I mean, if you're going to share, you know, where you're innately driven, uh, I would share that as well as, you know, as an overall thesis of this book, I kind of agree with a lot of the, not only just the thesis, but I agree with the sub points that are made throughout the book that are in support, right? And a lot of the stuff we've talked about on this podcast before, you, you've, we've talked about privately, now, with all that being said, I think that the whole thing, specialist versus generalist, there's two ways to look at it. You know, maybe there's, there's, the, there's the selfish way to look at it, right? And then there's that social way to look at it. So, you know, what, what you're saying is that to move forward, being a generalist may be the better way to, to go. Now, selfishly, I think it's a little bit more value-based, like what do you value more? If you, if you get a lot of happiness out of diving deep into one specific thing and you want to live your entire life like that in a, the silo of whatever your specialty is, then uh, you know, you're making some trade-offs to do that just as people are making trade-offs to be more of a generalist and learn more about a breadth of things, right? So I think that it, you know, for me, I like to believe like you that I like to dabble, you know, and I like to know a little bit about a lot of things as opposed to, you know, a lot about one specific thing. But I think that that's largely a choice that we have to make as we navigate our own lives, right? Where it's like, you know, because it is context specific. Like this book, you know, he sets it out as it's going to be a conversation of the 10,000 hour rule, you know, the Malcolm Gladwell, start early, deliberate practice, you know, the outliers, the whole research that was outliers and the um, Anders Ericsson, which is 10,000 hours and start early and, you know, and specialize and you could be the best in the world at what you're doing yeah. or like versus, well, sample a lot, start later, find out what you're going to match with best and, and that's going to give you the best opportunity. So it's like pitting one against the other. And I think that that, is fine, but I think that it's that in itself is context specific too, where it's like I, you could, you know, one of the things that, so I, again, I agree with a lot of the stuff that is in this book and it's innately how I view the world. So it's easy for me to, to talk in support of that. But on the contrary, you know, we're, if we read a Malcolm Gladwell book that's going to, in support of that, he's going to cherry pick the ideas that are going to be in support of the 10,000 hour rule. And David Epstein's going to cherry pick the stuff that's going to be in support of all of being a generalist. Yeah. So what's right and what's wrong, what's to believe and what's not to believe. I don't know. You know yeah. what I mean? It, I think it, again, it becomes up to the, to, to the person. And I, I think it's more important to understand what you're trading off and some of the realities of the trade-offs that you're making, you know, a tiger woods, how many things has he had a trade off in his life to be tiger woods yeah. to, to play golf since he was two years old. Did he have to trade off relationships? Did he have to trade off doing other things in his life? Did he have to trade? I don't know. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. Being a generalist, what are you trading off? Yeah. You're not going deep into a specific thing. So there might be specific questions that you're not going to be able to, to, to answer and you're going to have to defer to. But is that the best play for your life? Yeah. So I think, you know, you said a lot there, but I think there's <laughs> Sorry, two. I went like no, of, that's okay. I went like a huge that's rant okay. there. <laughs> that's okay. But I think there's two things that I would like to explore based off of uh, what you just said. And the second one will mm. be the concept of 
kind versus wicked environments because I think that's an important idea to get into when you're trying to determine, you know, which approach is the yeah. is the better one. But okay. the uh, the other thing um, is related to you know, and you brought up the ten thousand hours, which I'm glad you did because I was going to bring it up. I think one of the things Epstein is doing in this book is providing some counterbalance to popular cultural notions that have kind of become in vogue, right? So this idea of, you know, the 10,000 hours, which, which you brought up, but also this idea that starting early and getting that early head start, particularly with, with young kids, you know, picking something and then is the best way to get them to the highest levels eventually. And so one of the first things he does is, you know, he uses the Roger Federer, Tiger Woods example where, you know, Tiger Woods is kind of like this, you know, he's been doing the same thing and he's, he obviously achieved, yeah, you know, the, yeah, yeah. The, the top level that you could possibly achieve in golf, right? He's probably the best golfer totally. of all time. Yeah. And then you have Roger Federer, who is arguably the best, best tennis player, player of all time. But when you look back at his background, he did not specialize early. He, you know, he dabbled a bit and he actually had parents who like, kind of like refused to allow him to even specialize. Right. Yeah. And then he eventually matched up with tennis. And by the time he was, you know, high school age, he was behind in terms of his hours, like his, his peers that were, you know, excellent tennis players, but it doesn't seem to have mattered much. Right. And so one of the first things I think he tries to dispel is this notion that the only way to get to the highest possible levels is by early focus and, and narrow practice. And, and basically according to his research, right, that he uses yeah. in this book, he's saying that it's actually, if you look at people who have achieved the highest levels, more of them were actually dabblers early who had a lot of diverse experiences who then settled on something once they found a good match as opposed to the the Tiger Woods. So there's more Federers, we put it that way, at the yeah. highest levels of performance than there are Tigers. And, and that's contrary to what's the popular notion in our current culture, right? So I think he he's not saying that like one is better or one is worse, but I think he is saying that particularly depending on the context, which we could get into in a minute. I know yeah. you want to uh, respond. The, <laughs> I think it's not automatic that just because you start early and you practice a lot, that that's the path to yeah. the highest levels of mastery in any particular. And depending on what the, what the thing is, it might not be the best way. It might not even be a good way. Yeah. Right? No, so I'm, I'm happy that you brought that up because I think that that is a key point to make is – it's almost become sexy to talk about the 10,000 hour rule mm -hmm. and deliberate practice, especially in the, you know, this genre, right? Where it's like work hard, specialize early, like it, it has, right? And, and it's, it's been on the back of Anders Ericsson mm -hmm. and Malcolm Gladwell and mastery and, and, and all that. And, and, and I don't think that he's trying to refute that. Like you say, I think that he's just trying to present the other side of the case, which is great. I'm happy you brought that up. I think one of the important things for the reader to understand about that though is there's probably more of a sample size of people that don't start in the specialized early bucket. Mm -hmm. So by very nature, there's probably going to be more people who excel at a higher level who didn't start in specialized early. Right. That's possible. Yeah. You know, because yeah. I think that it's increasingly just on based on, and this is a completely assumptive, but just based on a sample size of people that I know, 
I can't think of hardly anybody who specialized super, super early on to the degree of, I mean, many probably haven't to the degree of Tiger Woods, but like in that same genre of like, they're just going to start early and just go, 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 yeah. go, 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 go. I can't even think of anybody. Well, you know, what's funny is though, if you, it, and I don't know, I mean, you're eight years younger than me yeah. and I don't even know if this trend had really caught on yet when you were a kid, but now like you, you, let's like look at sports, for example. Yeah. There are kids now that will play baseball. And, you know, it used to be you played baseball in the spring. You played some yeah. other sport in the fall. You played something in the winter. And now, you know, you have these kids who will literally play baseball all year round. Yeah. And the idea is that, like, if they're not playing baseball all year round, they're, they're falling behind their peers and they're not going to get to where yeah. they need to be. They're not going to achieve. And, you know, and, and I think that kind of thing is, is kind of what he's pushing back on where he's saying th- there's just no real good research to back up that that is going to give them a head start at that age. Yeah. And I think that's a good example. Yeah. too. I think it's a good it's, example. It's just interesting because there's a lot of that now. And I don't feel like that was like that necessarily when well, you were I, a kid. I, well, I mean, as I, much as I know that today. I mean, for, for me personally, I mean, just you again, using a sample size of one using myself. I mean, I definitely played baseball and hockey, but then I favored hockey. Yeah. You know, so there got, it got to a point where I dropped the baseball. Right. And just favored hockey, but I also picked up golf at that point too. Yeah. So it was always you got, like, you got a couple. Yeah. Different there was always a counter. On. There was always a counterbalance. Yeah. But I will say that the people that, well, no, even the people that I know that have excelled now, they were baseball players. So yeah, I mean, I, I mean, we'll use like some anecdotes here just to throw them out. I mean, think about it because you know these examples from sports. You know, like you, you, Alex Rodriguez. Yeah, right? exactly. Say what you will about his, you know. About his uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. supplementing, you know, his career. But actually, David Epstein, did you know that he was the one who originally broke the Alex Rodriguez? I did not know that. He broke the, he broke the I Alex, did not know that. He broke the PED Alex but Rodriguez But I do story. know that Alex Rodriguez was like a star quarterback in high school. Like in addition to being like yeah. one of the probably greatest baseball players of all time, right? In terms of his talent. And I remember like uh, somebody like Dave Winfield. Yeah. Dave Winfield, for anybody who doesn't know, was like, you know, a one of the tallest baseball players (laughs) ever. And, you know, and he was like a basketball star and a football star. And even from our own town here, like Hamden, Connecticut, like the best athlete I can remember was Scott Burrell. Scott Burrell, who won a championship in the NBA playing next to Michael Jordan, who, you know, was on some great UConn basketball teams. And when he played, when he was in Hamden, he was drafted as a baseball pitcher. He was a basketball player. And, you know, like he was not doing one sport exclusively until literally when he had to choose in college. The point being that there's just so many examples of these high-level athletes who, you know, they played all these different sports and they're developing their bodies in all these different ways. And all of that informs their ability to be great at the one that they finally settle on and and end up with. So I think there's a couple things that, Epstein kind of alludes to now as to, okay, fine. That's the case. We, 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 we've made the case. Like there's all these examples of people that are early specialization isn't the way. Isn't the only way. Isn't the only way. Right. And then it's like, why is that the case? And like, so he presents some of the more sub points, which is like the sampling period, right? Like how crucial that sampling period is and why it's so important is to try to find the match quality. You know, we used this example before we started. If I test a million different ways to, write an article or you test out a million different ways to play the guitar, you're going to find eventually the one that you match with 
the best that feels the most like you, right? Or or if, I figure out that the guitar is just not my instrument. Or you figured out the guitar is not your instrument or writing isn't the way to go. You know, there's that sampling period that's necessary to filter out what you should be doing and what you shouldn't be doing, why yeah. you should be doing. But here's where the nuance comes in is you have to kind of believe in this a little bit because even like with some of the examples that Epstein uses in the book, like I'll, I'll point to one, like the Vincent Van Gogh story where mm-hmm. like, Van Gogh, you know, was a chronic sampler, right? And then like, you know, the guy who wrote the the big book on Van Gogh, I forget his name. He basically sums it up as an undefinable process of digestion. Like like so you he couldn't really define how Van Gogh ended up painting. It was like he digested all this other stuff and it ended up on that thing, but it was kind of like unexplainable as to how that happened. And I think the bigger discussion that comes from this is why can't we just be okay with that? Mm-hmm. Like, why is it the fact that we we can't just take that for, listen, we should be sampling, we should be trying, we should be following our interests, we should be doing that stuff and be okay with the fact yeah. that like we can't really define how it's going to happen. Yeah. But if you try enough things, and I think another bigger discussion is that he doesn't really touch on in the book is do you have the guts to do that? Yeah. Like, can you, do you have the guts to continue to stop and restart again? Because that becomes a really hard thing to do. If I spend a lot of, if I spend three years playing an instrument and realize I don't like playing that instrument, do I have the guts to stop and play another instrument? Yeah, sunk cost. Do I, can I, can I quit? Which is a whole other thing that he explores in the book. Yeah, so I do have some thoughts about what you're talking about here. And I, I was thinking about a couple of things. One of the, you know, kind of human tendencies that I, that we have is we really don't like uncertainty (laughs) and we really crave certainty. (laughs) Yes. So I think that the idea of specializing and, and following this preset path, as opposed to like the kind of like try and see sampling period is a lot more appealing to us because it it gives us a sense of control yeah. that we can have more control over the outcome than we actually probably reasonably should expect to have. Right. So I think that that's a piece of it. The certainty, uncertainty idea. I think the other thing is that kind of like the explicit message of early narrow specialization is that it's necessary to get ahead and for mastery. Right? So there's pressure to do that's so. That's the explicit message, yeah? But the implicit message then, like, is that dabbling and experimenting is wasting time. Yeah. So, like, it, it, it's really two, it gets at two things. One, it's our, I think our need a- for certainty and that we, we are afraid that we're wasting our time. Well, the external pressure because the message, the outside right. culture, the, the message is, that's the message. That's the external pressure. So what you're saying is, is that there's two types of pressure. There's yeah. internal and there's external. The internal being our innate discomfort with uncertainty and the external pressure of the narrative around yeah. starting early right. versus dabbling. Right. Because it's not being said outright, but it's being implied that if we're saying that you need to start early to get all these hours in on this one thing, then what we're also implying by saying that is if you don't do that and you're spending a little bit of time on a lot of different things, well, you're essentially wasting your time because yes, you're eventually going to get to that one thing. Yeah. But once by the time you get to that one thing, you've already missed all these hours, right? Potentially. So if you could identify it early and start, you have a head start. But I think the argument that 
Epstein's making here is that that sampling period is not only not a waste of time, it actually is a necessity necessity because once you do match, like all of those experiences that you had brought in your range, right? Range is the title of the book. And and like you can't develop a range. And, and, and then he, you know, he, he extends this to a lot of other contexts where he's not just talking about sports yeah. anymore, right? And he's not, he, now he's talking about like problem solving, problem solving as a general thing, which is probably, I mean, yeah, it's it, probably the most essential skill, skill. that we ha- we can develop, right? I also think that that's the that's you know I I kind of made this case earlier on in some of the work that I you know writing that I did, but like. I think that that's probably the most heavily rewarded skill. So if you're a good problem solver, no matter what you do, people want you around. Mm-hmm. No matter what career you do, you know, if it's, I mean, no, maybe arts, it's, it's a little different, but like from a business perspective, professional perspective, if you're a, pro, look, you're an assistant principal, right? Mm-hmm. You're, you're a leader of an organization technically, right? Would you not like to have a, whole school filled of problem solvers. I mean, could you yeah. think of a better, like people who are innately good at solving yeah. problems? And not not only that, I would say that it's a hard thing to do. The majority of what my job actually is, is problem solving. Yeah. You know, uh, that's what, you know, so in, in, in my first book, The Salesperson Paradox, that's what I'm saying is the number one thing that a salesperson has to be able to do is to be able to problem solve above everything else. It's the same thing, but it's really a concept that transfers into any professional uh, atmosphere because there's countless problems all the time. Life is imperfect and people want people that are going to be able to solve problems, you know, around them and on their teams. It's just, it's, it's like, a, it's like, it's like a critical, critical skill. And so what he's saying in the book is, you know, this whole idea of ha- possessing more range really, really enables itself to being pivotal in problem solving. Mm-hmm. And he uses the example in the book, uh, one of the key core examples that he uses is the whole Carter racing thing, which is like, it was actually, um, yeah, based on the, based on the challenger, which was, you know, they gave a data set and asked them to solve the problem based on temperature and failures and all this stuff. And like, should they do the race based on all the data that we have, that we've Mm -hmm. shown you Mm -hmm. and they come to some conclusion, but nobody there bothers to ask, well, is there any more data? Mm Mm-hmm. Is there anything, is there any more data that you have that we, you know, need to, to make this decision? Like, is there a bigger picture that we, we don't have? Because that was the key to answering the problem, which was not just following the procedure, not just, you know, going by the book and asking, hey, do you have this larger data set that gives us the example of, that shows like the, the bigger picture, right? Like, yeah. and so, and, and that's what happened, you know, for better or worse with the challenger, which is they were just going by the book. They were going by the procedure. Right. They took what was given to them, tried to evaluate it, but no one bothered to ask like the bigger picture question. Well, and then he goes on though, but that, that there were some people who asked that question, but then they were dismissed Beyond that. The, the culture of the, this is our tool, right? Our tool is data-based and because we don't have yes. enough data points, we can't, you can't prove what you're saying quantitatively. <laughs> Therefore, we're going to follow this procedure. They didn't trust and Because we're following yes. the procedure. And that's where, you know, they bring in in the investigation after where, you know, Richard Feynman basically makes the comment about, you know, you didn't have the data and, and you were in unique territory and you didn't recognize it. And when you're in unique territory and you don't have the data, you have to rely on reason. Yeah. And that's where the failure was, right? Yeah. And, and so he's using that in that chapter too as an example of, 
the tool, how we get so accustomed to using these tools that we we apply them to every problem. It's like second nature. And we don't even realize that the tools that we're using are context specific anymore. It's just the way we do it. Yeah. Right. And, and sometimes the way we do it, and this is where you like to talk about, you can make a good connection here with your greatest strength can be your greatest weakness, right? It's like this very yeah. tool that has led us to so much success, you know, in this one situation where the context changes, and this is the the essence of like the kind versus the wicked yep. environment, right? The kind environment, the patterns are the same, the the solutions you can apply are the same, the results tend to be the same, and you can get really good at that. But you suddenly change the context a little bit, right? Yeah. And now all of a sudden, that tool that you've used so effectively all those times before now becomes a liability because you tr- you apply the wrong tool to yeah. the wrong problem in the wrong situation. And you get a really bad outcome. Really and, bad and that, outcome. I mean, that is the essence of why range as a concept, right? The broader, the diversity of your experience, the less likely you are to do that. I mean, that's the argument he's he's making, I think. Yeah, no, no, I agree. There is some degree of specialization that's always going to be necessary to perform certain tasks, right? Yeah. I think the idea here is that, you know, you also want to make sure that you're you have a broad enough base that you're not yeah. you're not trapped when the context changes and that you're better at recognizing that yeah. or that in in the absence of you being able to do it you've assembled a team that has a broad enough range of perspectives that you're going to be able to recognize we're in a new we're in we're we're dealing with something different because there's a part where he basically says that you know the best problem solvers spend a lot of time initially figuring out what kind of problem is it we're trying to solve before they automatically start applying, you know, solutions yeah. that they've memorized how to do. It's like, you know, I'm, I got to make sure I'm matching my strategy to my actual situation. And, you know, and I think what happens with learning in school is what you learn is you learn a bunch of procedures, really, when it comes down to it. And he, he talks about this in one of the chapters, how, you know, sometimes teachers will give out questions that make kids think, but then the kids are very good at getting it to the point where basically now they've turned it from like a a matching problem or a critical thinking question into just a procedure following thing. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and, and when we do that, we teach learners that like, you just apply this procedure and you're going to be able to, to, to solve the problem. And my favorite example of this that I ever use is I've had many times where I've had students have to calculate an average in class, right? And they come up with a number and the number is outside of the range, right? And they don't think twice about it. They just write it down. You know, it's like the numbers were 10, 12, 14, 17, and the average they have is 43. (laughs) Now, what does that tell you right there that when they do that, like they have no concept, They, they applied some procedure, right? They added all the numbers together or whatever. But they clearly have no concept of understanding what average means yeah. because if you did, there's no way that you'd You're be like 47. That. How could 47 yeah. be the average of this, right? And that fundamentally like is a huge problem. Like in order to have conceptual understanding, you need a broader a, base. A, a bigger breath. Yeah, a bigger but, breath. You know, you know, so yeah, and he revisits a study that we've already talked about on this podcast or on this with the Brian Kaplan book, which is, you know, talking about how we're pretty poor at transferring knowledge right. and it's the whole idea of you know the doctor there's there's an ailment in the stomach and like he gives the example of it's a tumor it's a tumor the radiation if you shoot it at it directly it'll kill the tumor but it'll also kill all the tissue 
going through, so that's no good. So what are you going to do? What are you going to do? So, you know, nobody has the answer, obviously, because, you know, and then right after that, they give the example of... They give him a story. ...about the general who was attacking the fortress, and they can't put all the troops in one, going at it in one shot, but instead what they do is they figure out if they attack from eight different angles... They're not going to, you know, as long as they all get there at the same time and concentrate their forces, it'll be the same thing as yeah. coming from one spot. Yeah. And so people still don't get that. Yeah. People still don't care. Yeah, they get it a little <laughs> bit more, but it takes a third example before, you know, it becomes even substantial yeah. where the people are able to transfer into, oh, well, we could solve the, the, the tumor problem by taking the radiation and coming at the tumor from yeah. eight different ways. And what is interesting, though, is then it goes further to say that. But when you tell them to use this story to figure out this solution, it, it improves their ability to do yeah. it. And you know, it, what's interesting is, you know, whereas Kaplan uses that as an example of how hard it is to teach for transfer, I think Epstein's using it as an example to show how we can use analogy and examples that are outside of the area to find structural similarities at the deep level of problems. Yeah. And if we can teach people to recognize that, we can improve their ability to transfer. Whereas Kaplan was using it as an example of look at all the things we're we bad. Do. Yeah, and we're we're really bad at this. He's saying, you know, well, one of the one of the things is that like we have this amazing ability to like engage in analogic thinking, right? We can use analogies. But he's saying if if you only rely on one analogy, it might lead you wrong. And if you're only relying on things within your context, you know, that inside thinking kind of kind of deal where you have more details about that, you can go the wrong way. But if you look at enough broad examples that are outside, you might find some deep structural similarities. Then you can apply, identify the correct problem yeah. and apply this. So the, I, have, the I, have a question. I have a question for you. Uh, so I was thinking about this as we were reading and, you know, this is something that we've talked about kind of offline, but I wanted to ask you about it now, which was the whole idea of style, right? And, and correct me if I'm wrong, because you could rephrase this at, at yeah, you, no. you know, how you define style for any person or any art form is understanding all the forms inside of whatever that is and s intentionally subverting you know whatever it is to create your own style my question is how does this idea fit into that thinking because like when i was reading a lot of the examples in this even one very specific one with that django reinhardt yeah you know it's a clear indication of there's really no sub intentional subverting of anything. Right. It's more like this is what I'm given and I'm just doing what I'm doing and this is what's coming out. Yeah. And so I was curious to know how the idea of range and the idea of sampling the test and learn approach, not diving deep into specialization plays into the whole idea of your idea of how someone creates a style for themselves. So I guess like there's, the way I would look at it is again, like what is the outcome that you're looking for, right? Yeah. If you want to be able to play, you know, like Mozart piano concerto number yeah. three or whatever <laughs> it is, I might be inventing yeah. that. It might not be such <laughs> a thing. You know, there's a way to play it. There's written music. You know, there's certain skill you might need at the piano to be able to do it that you're going to need to practice in a very specific way yeah. to be able to play that piece, right? Now, when you can play that piece very well, would you say that you're playing it in your own style? Probably not initially, no. right? 
then you might take a completely different approach, right? Whereas I, I don't, I have never even heard, you know, I've heard pianos played and I have a piano in my house and I, you know, I sit down and I'm tinkering on it. Maybe I, somebody shows me something and this, and, I, and then I take a few lessons and I teach myself some things and lo and behold, I'm just hitting the keys and seeing what they sound like and which ones are good in what order. And I learn how to play the piano that way, right? Yeah. And, you know, somebody who learns that way, are they going to be able to sit down and just play that? concerto no No. but are they going to have some uniqueness to them yeah probably and where's that going to come from it's going to come from what i did in experimenting but it also comes from experimenting based on stuff that's just out in the world around me that has gone into my brain right totally and and so i think what's interesting is if if the goal and i think another thing that he's talking about here is if if we want to be able to think critically and be creative then what we need to do is we need to have this broad range, right? So it would be good for you to listen to all kinds of music and learn all kinds of styles and and maybe start trying to do it before you learn all the rules. So this is, I think, where we had some, I don't want to say like conflict, but like some disagreement was I was saying that my way has always been learning a little bit about a thing, then engaging in it once I felt confident enough that I knew what I yeah. was doing. Whereas you were saying, you know, I'm not interested really in, in obeying those those rules right away. I'm I'm going to do it my way and then I'll learn the rules as I need to learn them, right? And I, I don't think there's a right or that's right or wrong, but I think if ultimately what you're looking for is creative creativity and style, your way is likely the better way because what I'm doing is I'm getting into the box. Yeah. And once I'm inside the box, it becomes very hard to get outside the box. What you're doing is you're not even you're not even looking at the box right now. You're just doing this. And and somebody who's a a, a funny uh, story. I remember like reading a Neil Young interview one time, and you know somebody like Eric Clapton or somebody was going to play guitar on yeah. stage with them and and. Neil Young was going to tell him what the music was or something like that. And he was like, oh, don't worry. I'll just follow you. You know, and he was like, oh, no, you don't want to follow <laughs> me. And he, and then after the performance, he was like, you're right. I had no idea, like, why you were doing what you were doing. And, like, there's someone where you got, like, Eric Clapton, who's, like, this very technically gifted guitarist. And Neil Young, particularly his electric guitar style, like, there's <laughs> nothing technically amazing about it, but it's very unique, yeah. right? And you wouldn't teach somebody to play like that. Yeah. You would teach somebody to play like Eric Clapton, but but – he has that unique style, yeah. and, and but somebody else who knows what they're doing looks at that and goes, why the hell yeah. is he doing it like that? Yeah, it's so funny. So, I mean, I think there's a lot of... I don't a, know if I answered your question. No, no, but no, no. no, no. I, I think th- there's a couple of like quotes that I, I, you know, I actually wrote down that actually are, you know, that apply directly to what we're saying. And it's like, I, I don't want to mispronounce the guy's last name, but he teaches the guitar, Jack. Cicchini or Jack Cicchini or something. He's like an expert guitar yep. teacher or something, you know, you know, and there's a lot about him in there. And, and one of the quotes that he says is, you know, I get a lot of students from schools that are teaching jazz and they all sound the same. They don't seem to find their own voice. I think when you're self-taught, you experiment more trying to find the same sound in different places. You learn how to solve problems. So essentially is what he's saying is they're not learning inside the box. Yeah. They're just doing. And then when they encounter a problem with whatever they're doing, they learn, how could I solve this problem to make it work? And then he goes on further to say, you know, I could show somebody in two minutes what would take them years of screwing around on the fingerboard like I did to find out. You don't know what's right or wrong. You don't have it in your head. You're just trying to find solutions to problems. And after 50 lifetimes, it starts to come together for you. 
But at the same time, there's something to learning that way. So he's, what he's saying is, yeah, like I, I could teach uh, somebody how to play the guitar the way that took me 50 lifetimes to figure out. But it's probably still not going to be impactful as it would be for that person to take 50 lifetimes to figure it out. Right. Because, because the process of figuring it out is the learning. And what, and what Epstein goes on to say and like his major conclusion is like, you're probably better off learning deeply. Like the deep learning is the slow learning. It's not that hyper specialization of we've got to teach you this right now, blah, 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 blah. And then it's like every day, every day, every day. It's that problem solving mentality of like, it's what he calls test and learn versus plan and yeah. implement. You yeah. know, it's a, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a mind shift of you're, you're, you're testing and learning in small increments yeah. versus planning out and then implementing. Yeah. It's almost like looking at the startup company versus the corporation. The startup company is going to, te- or a good startup is going to test and learn a million times before that corporation can do one plan and implement. And, it will, you know, so he's making the case, obviously, for test and learn. And I think that that applies in, in the... Yeah. You no, know, I, I agree with that. You know, and then the other... And just to, just to talk about quickly, there's one other quote that was like the Reinhardt, which was funny. Django Reinhardt, who, by the way, anyone who doesn't know who he is, he's a musician who kind of was very influential in... You yeah, know, his guitar style is after his hand basically got burned up in an accident, and, and like, like so, he was forced to play with two fingers, and like it influenced like the whole Jimi Hendrix. Uh, yeah, you know, if you've never seen him, I mean, there's videos of him on YouTube, and it's amazing. <laughs> yeah, watching him. So, play. He, what's it's funny is, is there's a quote in there where he says, "Where Reinhardt is like having a conversation with Les Paul, who's." Yep. You know, Les Paul, most yep. people probably listen to know who Les Paul is. Invented the solid body electric <laughs> guitar, essentially. Uh, you know, he goes, you know, Reinhardt tapped Paul on the shoulder and asked if he could read music. And I said, no, I didn't. And Paul recounted and he laughed till he was crying and said, well, I can't read either. I don't even know what a C is. I just play them. Yeah. <laughs> it, it is funny because, you know, it's, it's... I don't even know what a C is. It's, I just play it. There's a, there's a lot of good quotes at, at different points in this book that are... I just thought that all yeah. those, by the way, were like in line with what we were kind of talking about. Well, you know, it's, it's life is not experienced in theory. Right, it's experienced in practice. Yeah, and that, that's actually another you know, quote that they it, use. It's in, in there somewhere, <laughs> yeah. right? I, it's, I, it's, I, I, we learn who we are in practice, not in theory. Right, and and the idea is, okay, I can know every single thing there is to know about music theory, and not be able to play very well, or I could spend all the time I'm spending learning about music theory at playing, right? And and it's not that not knowing anything about music theory, but but the idea is that I could I could also start playing and play for years as a self-taught player and not understand why any of the things I'm doing are working, but I do them and, and they, they work. work, right? And and that doesn't that's not to say that like then going backwards and finding some of that learning, but I, I think that's kind of what he's one of one of the ideas is that it's if creativity and and developing this range is the goal, we might actually be better off struggling through that that learning yeah. process without knowing exactly all the forms, then going back and learning them if creativity is the goal. Because if once we learn the forms, we can't get outside of them. It's very hard, right? And so my idea was, well, what you do is you subvert them on purpose. But And yes, maybe you can do that, but it's certainly a lot easier to, to 
to do things when you don't know that you're not doing it the right way. Yeah. Right? I, I think, you know, another great quote in there is he says, frustration is not a sign you're not learning, but ease is. So it's like once something, the fact that like something becomes easy to do for you, that's like almost the sign when like, You've got to kind of switch it up if you're trying to learn. Yeah. If you only practice what's easy, you're not you know, getting any better. It's like the frustration part is part of the learning. It's that learning slowly. It's that problem solving. It's that, okay, I screwed up this time. Now how can I, how can I make this better for the next time I do it? Like that's where the, the frustration aspect is. I mean, I, I don't know. That, that kind of like just really hits home with me because I think deep down inside of me, I feel that way to a degree. Like when something gets to be like where I think I could do something, I innately think like, okay, like how could I try to switch this up where it's not something that I could do Yeah, that it's going to be super easy to reproduce again. And that may have, I may be trading off like some things to be able to do that. But I don't know. It just feels right to keep trying to be frustrated with not being able to do yeah, the well, next the, the, thing. I mean like the, the concept of like flow and like how do you maximize a state where learning is optimal, right? Yeah. And what you want, you know, and this is an education term that's so overused and, and not well-defined, but rigor – Right, you rigor basically. You you want a level of rigor that's just hard enough that you can't do it, right? But yeah. but it's not so far above you, you you can do that's it. That's what we. Right? I think it, I think Daniel it, Pink talks about that as yeah, a mastery asymptote. And, right, and it's very hard to figure out exactly where that is. But like for me right now, you know, like if I said I want to pick up tennis, like me going and playing games against Roger Federer <laughs> isn't going to make me better, right? No. He's not going to make me a better tennis player. But me playing with somebody who's Marginal. on my level but just a little bit better than me, you know, like pushes me to, you know, it's not so bad, you know, I'm going to win a couple of points. I might not win a match, but I then I win a game. And then I, but but eventually when I can beat that person every single time, yeah. Well, now what am I going to gain by playing that person again and again and again, right? You you want to up that level. And so for you, you know what you what I think you're saying is is you always want to look for that thing because it's very easy to stay in your comfort. But here's the thing, level is like, of what's easy and then you're not really innovating here, or here, pushing yourself. But here's the thing is in a lot of especially in a lot of art forms, they call it writing or yeah. Or music or any of that. Like yeah. there are clearly like people who elect to stay right in their lane. Yeah. And just do the same thing over and over and over and over and yeah. over again. And there's nothing wrong with that necessarily because you can have – it's probably a easier way to create a successful career for yourself yeah. than the other way around. Well, and that's the, where the context is. It comes back to intent. Why am I – like yeah. you always say, why am I doing this thing? Am I creating art because it's it's – a job and I think of it as, yeah, it's, it's creative, but it's also what I do for a living. And if I just keep doing it this way, I make a good living. So, th so there's some external pressure there to, to stay in your lane, right? And or I want you to do this. Or are they ahead of the curve and they had that whole sampling period and then they selected well, maybe, that. But I mean, it's going to yeah. be, it's going to be different, right? It's going to be different. And you know, maybe Bob Ross was perfectly happy painting that <laughs> painting again and again and again. <laughs> and really he's just, you know, and, and people who have some knowledge about art are like, you know, all he's really doing is applying a few techniques <laughs> 
that anybody can learn and just doing the same yeah. thing over and over and over and over. Like each, essentially one Bob Ross is the same as every other Bob Ross, but people love Bob Ross, right? Totally. He seemed perfectly happy to paint those paintings. So like, I don't know why he's doing it. Maybe he got to the point where he's tried a thousand other painting styles. And you know what? I just really enjoy yeah. painting happy little trees and, you know, friendly little clouds. And it's just very hard to know, right? Yeah. And it's not like any of this stuff is about right or wrong. Um, We're just having a, it's just, a, yeah, it's, it's just, it's just it, discussion, it's right? So oh. it, it, but I think like so many of the things that are in this book are just really interesting in that sense because it really starts making you think about like, what are the messages that I'm getting? And like, what is the best way to achieve? You know, like for me personally, like it's somewhat inspirational to get to the end of a book like this. And, and when he says, you know, here's my sentence that I would say, don't feel behind. Yeah. Because I think what so many of us internalize is that it's too late for me now. Yeah. I can't start. And you know, like me as I'm about to be 41 years old and like, I have this like dream in my mind of, you know, writing songs and and playing them. And like, I'm not behind. No, like not at all. Maybe every experience I've had has gotten me to the point now where I need to be, where I've like I'm ready to do this thing, and I, I have matched up, and and like, but I could very easily have gone down a path where I said, well, it's just too late for me to learn how to do that now. So, I'm not going to waste my time. So I I'm think, 40 years old. I've never done this. Why start now? Look, I'm happy that that's the conclusion that you came to because that was the conclusion that I kind of came to too, which is like the big takeaway for this book for anybody who's reading it is because if you want to get practical, super practical, because I always like to get it to a practical, yeah. something practical is it's not too late to start. No. Whatever you're, you want to do, and I know that this sounds romantic and this could sound, but it's not too late to start because the bigger question that you have to start answering are some of the things that you're going to only be able to know by doing that thing that you're doing. Yes. So it's like you have to just start doing it. You have it to start doing it. Because you're going to have to learn. You want to learn because if you want to create the music that you want to create, you're going to have to find the voice that feels right to you. Yeah. But you can't do that without doing it over and over again and doing it and learning and problem solving and all that stuff that he's talking about in here. But again, the big message is start. Just start. Yeah. And then when you start, don't be afraid to stop and start something else. Yeah. Stop and start, stop and start. And like if people could take away that from this book, that's like it's an invaluable invaluable lesson yeah. that like I just I'm super passionate about, but I f- was so happy that like that was kind of your major takeaway yeah. because that was kind of mine with this book which is like man, it's just not too late to start. Like no. just start doing because everything that you've done up to this point in your life informs that thing. Informs that thing in a way that nobody else can possibly approach that specific thing. I talk about that in the gap. I talk about that in all is, you know, we all have a unique, very unique specific set of compounded experiences. And in that way, your perspective is different than anybody else's. So you have the ability to create things by by that very definition and do things that nobody else can possibly do. Now there's downfall to that because you're projecting that perspective onto people and all that other stuff. But the positive side is that, that nobody in the world has the same set of compounded experiences that you have. So it's like, now it's just like, how could I find my voice and fit in to the way that I want to find my voice and fit in? Or how do I want to find my writing style and fit in? Or how do I want to paint the picture and fit in? Or how do I want to do whatever I want to do and, and fit in? And not fit in to like, so that way you feel good creating whatever you're creating. Because the first iteration of that 
<laughs> is usually you look back on it and you're like, damn, like that was brutal. Yeah. You know what I mean? So what he kind of suggests, you know, cause he, he finishes up the book with how can you expand your range? Right. So he comes up with his idea of, you know, don't feel behind, you know, I like uh, that. But in, that. in addition to that, you know, he, he adds a couple of pieces. He says a couple of things that I think are good. Like compare yourself to yesterday not to people who aren't you, right? Especially younger people who've achieved more. Everybody learns at their own rate. And, you know, you need to look at where you've been and where you're going, right? Not looking at other people. And I know I've heard you say similar things about comparison, uh, right? One of, my, um, one of my favorite lines is, you know, the world just needs you to be better at being you. Yeah. So it's like, that's what they're going to reward you for. Which leads right to this next, you know, thing he suggests, which is to proactively pursue match quality to plan experiments. And, and this was something that we talked about when we talked about barking up the wrong tree. And I don't remember exactly what the phraseology was there, but it was like, you know, plan little things that you can just try just to try out this and yeah. I'm going to try that. And, and, and not like saying I'm going to spend a year doing this, but just, you know, experiment and see what you like. This is so funny because like, I, right? I told my buddy the other day, I told one of my buddies, I said, you know, there's a couple things that I want to do. I want to learn a language and I want to, I want to hear myself. I've been saying that for years and I because I don't know any other language. And I said, I want to sing. I want to like hear myself sing. Like I want to hear like, and so he started laughing. He's like, oh, so you want to be a singer? I'm like, no, I don't want to be a singer, but I want to like record myself singing yeah. a couple songs and I want to hear what I sound like singing a couple songs. That's like funny. full like tunes. Just because I want to do it. Just because I want to do well, it. you come over to my house and you can do that. <laughs> well, like I just, we can make that, I can make that a reality I just, I just like want to know like what, it, and I want to see like if I'm interested because like yeah. I love music. And I love the <laughs> so then he keeps going with be willing to learn and adjust as you go, right? abandon even abandon a previous goal and change direction entirely should the need arise just with the recognition that even when you move on from an area of work or an, even an entire domain right that experience is not wasted there's no substitute for diverse experience and experimentation it's just not a waste of time so don't think that because you're trying a lot of different things now this doesn't mean that like He's also not saying like flit from one thing to another, like, you know, with no aim yeah. whatsoever. You know, part of the skill here is knowing when to quit, to quit right? Which that, is a whole other, yeah, and he that, brings but that, up the but Seth Godin. He does bring up the Seth but that's he, the hard part, I think. It is the hard the part. The hard part is knowing, okay, when has this run its course? Yeah. When, you know, am I, am I, am I subverting the magic of compounding yeah. by abandoning this thing yeah. right now? Well, and, and, and also recognize the the external pressure on us you know winners never quit and quitters never win yeah. right and then the whole the whole idea of grit right duckworth and grit and this research that like you know you got to just persist and persist and persist and never change your interests that's part of grit yeah. like i know what i want yeah. and so like part of me thinks geez i've been doing this for two straight years and I really don't like it, but if I just keep pushing myself, you know, like if I quit now, I'm a, you know, and like, here, here, that's a different situation than, here's you know what, I bought a guitar and I put my fingers on the strings today and I couldn't make music immediately, so I decided guitar's not for yeah. me, right? And so threw it in the closet this, for the rest this of is, my life. This is my trick to answer that question. Like, I don't know how anybody else quits, but I've quit a lot of different things. But this is the thing that I always <laughs> ask myself. Am I going to be able to do this thing over and over and over and over again. Am I going to be able to do this thing for five years, 10 years? And I know that that's a big question to ask. Because you don't know what you're going to want to do in five years. What you want to do in five years. But if I know right now. That I like it now. No, that I can't see myself oh, doing right, it. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Then I got to abandon that thing because 
the you're like you what, can only make the judgment based on now. And what it's going to take to do the, at the level that you want to do it, or I guess this goes back to your intention. But for me, the compounding is so critical to whatever you're trying to do, whatever save, create, yeah. whatever is so critical that it's like once you realize that you're not going to be able to do that thing over and over and over again. Doesn't mean you shouldn't start and try, but once you realize that you're yeah. not going to be able, then because the, go on to something else. Because the people that are doing that thing are going to keep doing that yeah. thing over and over and over again. Now I'm not comparing myself yeah. to them, but what I'm saying is, is like, for me, quality and like doing something at a high level is really important, and it doesn't mean you have to start at that level, but it's like that's an important thing. Yeah. So for me, so it's like. Once I realize that I'm not going to be able to do this over and over and over again, it's like, all right, I got to stop doing this thing because there's going to be people that are going to do this thing, the same type of thing that I'm doing, and I'm just not going to be able to compete at the level that I want to be able to compete at. Mm-hmm. Or, 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 yeah, or, no, I get that makes that makes sense. Yeah, but I, I do think that you know the idea is through that process you just develop more breath, right? You, no, you experience do. more well, things. That, that's the thing. And that, and, and that and ultimately. You're, and you're able to transfer the things that you're learning in those things that you're doing into other, right. other, other, other forms of, you know, whatever you are doing consistently. Right. I kind of felt weird there because I was, try- I, was I, I kind of was dancing on the idea of like competing with other people and I don't mean it in that sense. Yeah. Like yeah. I, I didn't mean it in that sense as, as much. Well, as- I think you were personalizing it a little bit yeah, more was. too. Yeah, right? it was. For what it means for you. What it meant for me. Yeah. And, you know, and I, don't, I didn't want that to be misconstrued. Yeah. It was just, I just wanted to clarify that so, a little bit. So for me, you know, like aside from those personal takeaways on like the, the, like the macro level, yeah. you know, why is this an important book? You know, we live in a complex world. right? No denying that. It doesn't get less complex. It gets more complex. That's the path that we're on. And the other path that we're on is because of increasing complexity, we see smaller and smaller piece of the puzzle all the time, right? It's just, you can't expose yourself to everything. And there's more to expose yourself to every single day, right? So we need more people who really embrace like diverse knowledge, diverse experiences, diverse perspectives. We need to incentivize that in addition to incentivizing this narrow specialization, right? And I'm quoting here, seeing small pieces of a larger jigsaw puzzle in isolation, no matter how high def the picture, is insufficient to grapple with humanity's greatest challenges. The bigger the picture, the more unique the potential human contribution. Our greatest strength is the exact opposite of narrow specialization. It is the ability to integrate broadly. So this idea that like, Really, what's what we can do that's amazing is we could take things that seem disparate and we can bring them together to create these yeah. new and amazing solutions. But we can't do that if we don't siloed. If we're siloed, if we're siloed, right? If we if we only specialize, you know, very narrowly. And uh, you know, possibly my favorite example of this in the whole book, and I, I was determined to get this in here <laughs> That's a good. because when I read it, I, I had like a strong jolt of nostalgia. Uh, you know, you go back to the mid eighties. Was it Nintendo? It was Nintendo. <laughs> and I, I just remember 
you know, the the first game I bought when I had a Nintendo was Metroid. And, you know, people are going to have to go look this up <laughs> online now if you don't know what Metroid is. And I would play this game every day. And I also had a paper route. And I remember the very first time I got to the end of Metroid. And I was so nervous that I died fighting the last, you know, boss, right? And then I went and I did my paper route. And I came back and I typed in the code, which I had meticulously written down. And I win the game. And I'm reading the credits at the end. And there was just for some reason, there was always a name in those credits. Because there's always a bunch of Japanese names. And there's, I don't know who they are, that always stuck with me. And the name was Gunpei Yokoi, right? This name stuck with me. And then we get to this part in the book where there's like 10 yeah. pages about this guy. And I couldn't even believe it. And really what he was amazing at was he was just, he, he didn't like know how to do anything very specially, but he was like, taking all these old technologies and, and ideas from other places and just putting them together in yeah. these creative ways to make these things. And he ends up basically turning Nintendo from a company that was game like Boy, right? some, some card game, right? Yeah, it was, uh, so they sold flower cards. Some card game yeah, to this, this. And then they ended up being, then they like went into like the hotel business. Yeah, and, they, and, and basically they end up completely revolutionizing the video game industry. And now yeah. today, video games is like, the single largest media yeah. business. It's like bigger than movies. Yeah, it's that like, was like that was like a, a great example of like it's just they, amazing. They, they right? had to pivot like a million times to be able to fi finally find the one thing that like kind of stuck. But him particularly, yeah. he was taking all these things because he just had a little bit of this and a little, and he wasn't an expert in any of them. Yeah, and and then he would also then once he had the idea, he wouldn't even learn it. He would then leverage an expert. To do the yeah. thing that he wanted defer. the expert to do, right? And defer. so somebody else would do the, the actual game design. He just is yeah. putting all these. And 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 I just when I read that yeah. name though, I was like, oh man, that's that's really funny. <laughs> that is, that is so funny. I, I like the idea though of like seeing a bigger picture, pulling everything together, solving those complex problems, having that diverse experience. Yeah, I, know, I, that's, I, I'm happy you brought up that example. There's a ton of examples in the book that are not that example, but you know they are. You know, there's a lot of different examples, so I'm sure people yeah. can find ones that like. And a lot of like, they're really, yeah, there's yeah. little nuance to them, little nuggets of things like, you yeah, know. yeah, totally. I, I think you know, for me on a personal level, I just really like the thesis of the book. I, you know, I, 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 I tend to agree, you know, overall with the idea of being a generalist and leveraging breadth rather than depth to be able to solve problems and to be able to create things and to be able to test and learn and, and all that good stuff. So it, it's it's really just, it was an easy book in that regard. For me, you know, I, I told you this, if I'm going to be all fairness, I felt like the only thing that I could say about the book that from a negative perspective was a lot of the examples started to get a like repetitive almost like it started to articulate the same points towards the end of the book where it wasn't spread out enough and i felt like just the book could have been a little bit shorter uh and it could have got the same effect for me that yeah. was just my personal opinion from a style standpoint or from a structure yeah. standpoint where i'm like i got to like like maybe 80 to 100 pages left and i'm like yeah another example where it's going to kind of yeah. come to the same well, thing. Well, I think what ends up happening is he was like slicing the pie thinner and thinner and thinner where, you know, like at first it's a big slice and the next slice is, you know, yeah. a big piece and this is a big piece. And then eventually it's very nuanced. It's like a slightly different variation yeah. on this and a slightly, but it all basically came back to, you know, the idea that a broad 
range of yeah. knowledge is better than a yeah. narrow and you know, sampling and testing yeah. and learning yeah. and, and yeah. that whole idea. So I do agree. I do agree with that. So, all right, man, I'm not going to announce the, the next book of the month yet because we're taking the month of August off, but that'll be on the reading list. Actually, my new reading list that's coming out will be the book of the month. Uh, that would be for September, September, right? September correct. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, this has been a lot of fun. Yeah. Happy August. Happy August. Enjoy. Let's do this next time. Yeah. Wait, before you go, I used to ask people to rate and review the podcast because it helps people find the show and it helps the show in general. But what I realized was this was kind of self-serving. And sure, I put a lot of work in the podcast and I care a lot about it. But honestly, I don't really care if you rate it or review it. Although I'd be honored if you did. What I truly care about is if you actually do like it. So you're inspired by it or you tune back in and you're excited to listen to the episodes that you share it with somebody else. Tell a friend, family member or a colleague. This happens to be a much straighter line to helping the show and helping other people find the show. But that's all I've got. I promise my rant is over now. Thank you so much for listening and your ongoing support.